This is a RomiCast. This podcast was recorded in December of 2021. Is he dead? Sit you down, Father. Rescue. Take 12. Are you excited? Can we just have a little less guitar in the earphones? Oh, that's all right. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Walrus Was Paul, a series of podcasts hosted by me, Paul Romanuk. Join me and let's take a stroll along the cast iron shore and peel off the layers of the glass onion with another great musical guest as we discuss their favorite Beatles or Beatles solo album. Our guest this week, the founder, lead singer, and songwriter of one of the great power pop bands of the late 80s and 90s, Mr. Mo Berg. And Mo will be joining us shortly, but before we bring Mo in, I just want to remind you that the podcast website is is romycast.com that is r-o-m-y-c-a-s-t dot com if you head there you can find each and every episode that we have done so far in this series this is the 13th episode of series 2 you can find the first 12 episodes of this series as well as all 15 episodes of series 1 and a, a couple of bonus episodes kicking around as well you can find it all there at romycast.com or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Uh, If you see fit, we would really appreciate it here at the Walrus Was Paul Global Headquarters (laughs) if you could make a donation to support keeping the show commercial free. We like to keep it commercial free, nice and clean. Any donation is much appreciated and your donation goes towards offsetting the costs of the show, web hosting, advertising, some equipment costs. It, It is a labor of love for me. I do this because I love it. I love talking about music. I love talking to musicians. But if you do enjoy the show, and I know there are a lot of you out there who do, then please consider a donation to support the show. Maybe just a couple of dollars per episode. It's not that much. Less than a uh, an expensive coffee. Just click on the donate button on the website if you'd like to help out. And thanks again. Along those lines, big shout-outs and thanks to Bill Irving, who sent a note with his donation. Uh, received a couple of nice donations over the holidays, one of them from Bill, Bill Irving, and he said, listening to you on Christmas Eve from Washington, D.C., and feeling less homesick for Canada. Well, glad to have kept you company, Bill, and I hope you had a great holiday season, and thank you very much for the donation. And also, thanks to a returning donor, Ernie Penn, who said, Merry Christmas, or should I say, Happy Christmas. Uh, That little Beatle thing there, right? The Beatles say Happy Christmas, as they do in the UK. We tend to say Merry Christmas in Canada. Uh, He goes on to say, Still loving the show. All the best to you and your family. Right back at you, Ernie, and thanks again for your donation. If you you would like to make a donation i'll be happy to give you a shout out as well all you have to do is visit the website romicast.com for more information also if you don't already please subscribe to the show via your favorite podcast provider and if you could leave a positive review or rating that really does help other people find the podcast thank you very much for that you can follow the podcast on twitter or instagram at the handle Romanuk Paul. That is Romanuk Paul. That is also the best way to get in touch or comment on any of the episodes. 
So as I teased a few moments ago, our guest this week is Mo Berg. Mo is best known to Canadians as the founder, chief songwriter, and singer of The Pursuit of Happiness. Uh, This band enjoyed international success, but huge success in their home country with their debut album, Love Junk, which was produced by the great Todd Rundgren. A big hit off the album uh, was the single, I'm an Adult Now, a driving guitar song with fun lyrics, a great vocal performance, and one of my all-time favorite guitar solos. If you'd like to hear Mo talk a little bit about working with Todd Rundgren uh, and that guitar solo in that song, uh, go into the archive for The Walrus with Paul and hunt down his first appearance in the podcast, which was in Series 1, and he was talking about the Canadian release, Long Tall Sally, the Long Tall Sally album, and I talked to him on that podcast about working with Todd Rundgren and uh, and how he uh, wrote I'm an Adult. Now, we'll probably touch on that as well uh, when I talk to him here in a few minutes. Mo still plays occasional gigs with the pursuit of happiness. Uh, he is also in the Canadian supergroup, the Trans Canada Highwaymen, along with Stephen Page, ex of the Bare Naked Ladies and a great solo artist, uh, Craig Northey from Odds, and Chris Murphy of Sloan. That's the Trans Canada Highwaymen. Mo is also an independent producer, and along those lines, we'll be talking to one of the artists that he produced, James Clark in an upcoming show, so listen up for that. You can find Mo on Twitter and Instagram at Mo, T-P-O-H, that is M-O-E, Mo, T-P-O-H, T-P-O-H, The Pursuit of Happiness. You can also visit his website, Moberg. That is moberg.ca. He's a a really good writer as well uh, and has the occasional blog post on his website. Uh, If you peck around there, you can find some cool stuff to read. Uh, The Pursuit of Happiness music is available on all streaming services. So Mo Berg, musician, songwriter, singer, producer, and of course, a Beatles fan. Mo, welcome back to the podcast. And thanks again for taking time to talk to me about the Beatles. Well, I'm glad to be back paul thanks a lot for having me and who want, who wouldn't want to talk about the beatles hey well the last time you were a guest you chose the north american release long tall sally which was a lot of fun it was a canadian release so now we zoom ahead from 1964 to 1970 and the beatles are in tatters and your choice is paul mccartney's first solo record mccartney what made you right. pick this one well, I love the record. That was one reason. And in fact, it was, I toyed with uh, picking this the first time I was going to come on the show. And, uh, um, but I just felt like I, the, 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 the record I chose, uh, Long Tall Sally was just, it was so personal to me. I just felt like that was the one I needed to, to talk about. But now that I've gotten that out of my system, they, this, it's just, it's just such a unique record. And it came at such an interesting time in the, in, you know, Paul McCartney and the Beatles um, career. Um, it, it, there's just a lot, you know, there's, it's, it's unlike anything else that anybody did of the four of those, in my opinion, it's just a very unique, interesting kind of record. I like it more now than I did when I first heard it. When I first heard it, I was a little kid and I didn't, I didn't, I don't think I got it. But now that I hear it and, and, you know, especially through the lens of all the music that I've listened to um, over the, you know, the decades since then, it, it makes a lot more sense to me. And it, it seems cooler to me. The record has a like a cool factor that, quite honestly, a lot of Paul McCartney solo records do not have. <laughs> and so um, and so, I, yeah, there's there's something uh, there's just something about it that, I, in fact, it just kind of grows on me more than, than anything else. That's I find that I, with this record and also with Ram, um, mm-hmm. you know, I didn't appreciate them when I was a kid and I love them now. You know, they're go- now, it's funny if you follow Mo on Twitter, he's a great follow. Uh, but the, one of the funniest things that always makes me smile is up in the sort of descriptor, it says, and I'm paraphrasing here, but I used to be a rock star now i'm a producer <laughs> so so who are you producing right now that excites you 
Well, um, I, I might have even been talking about this when I saw you last, but a record came out that I really loved working on. And I think it's a really great record. It's called The Color of Happy by a guy named James Clark Institute, who was very, very influenced by the Beatles. So anybody who's a Beatles fan would probably get, uh, would probably enjoy the record a lot. Um, I'm in the middle of working on a, something with a woman named Serena Haggerty. And, uh, um, yeah, that's about it right now. Um, probably be starting some stuff maybe in the new year. How has it changed? How has COVID changed your uh, the mechanics of being a producer? I mean, clearly, I mean, I guess maybe a little bit now, but for most of the last eighteen months, you're not sitting in a studio. Definitely not. Yeah, it's it. Uh, you know, uh, for me, it kind of the whole thing kind of dried up a bit. I had just before the you know all the lockdowns came i was working on a bunch of projects I, well like three i think three projects and um and then everything just kind of stopped and then um i uh i ended up finishing some of it uh, so as soon as we could go back in the studio i just kind of raced in there with the artist that the artist i was working with and we just kind of blasted through you know everything else thinking like maybe we've got like a two or three week window before some you know more something more catastrophic <laughs> comes along so i ended up blasting through a bunch of stuff uh, a group called Whiplash girl child and i think it was a lot of the james clark stuff too um and then i ended up just fixing some doing a little bit of stuff at home i ended up sort of like getting a little bit better stuff and doing some vocals here at my place which is something i typically wouldn't do and so yeah i'm i'm sort of gearing that's kind of made me sort of gear up a little bit for the possibility of you know being able to do some more stuff just by myself without a studio well let's keep our fingers crossed and uh, before we tear into this i i do just want to go through and put things uh, in a little bit of context as uh, as i like to so let's go back to late 1969 and the beatles have a number one album in the charts all over the world abbey road a global massive hit had been released at the end of september in 1969 uh, while the project they had worked on before it let it be was still something they couldn't make their minds up about a, a couple of different versions versions of the album mixed by Glenn Johns had been rejected. So at the end of 1969, there was no firm release date for the album or the movie. Uh, such was their lack of interest in the project that the Get Back tapes weren't even given to Phil Spector until 14 months after they'd been recorded. So it would seem 50 years later that it depended on what day you talked to what Beatle as to whether or not the band would continue. Uh, a recording of a meeting on September 8th, 1969 at Apple between John, Paul, and George with Ringo not able to make it because he was in hospital. That's why the meeting was taped. Uh, that tape surfaced to Beatles historian Mark Lewison in September of 2019. And on that tape, there is talk of the band working on a single for the Christmas season, plans for another album, and the idea that albums should feature four songs each from John, Paul, and George, and a couple from Ringo, and that they be credited as individual songwriters rather than the Lennon-McCartney credit that had become iconic. Uh, there was also evidenced, as referenced in some of the conversations we heard in the the Peter Jackson Get Back documentary, that the framework might be that the individual members of the Beatles work on individual projects, but they still come together to do group projects as well. So even before the end of 1969, you saw John Lennon kind of doing his own thing. He recorded and released Give Peace a Chance and Cold Turkey under the Plastic Ono Band banner. He had appeared at the Toronto Rock and Roll revival on September 13, 1969. That's only 24 days after the final mixing session for Abbey Road and five days after the meeting at Apple that I just referred to a moment ago. Uh, Lennon then releases Live Peace in Toronto, the album. Ringo is working on an album of old standards. He starts work on that in October of 1969. Sentimental Journey comes out in March of 1970. George Harrison hasn't started work on All Things Must Pass yet. He doesn't do that until May of 1970. But you heard him mention the prospect of doing a solo record during the Let It Be sessions. Uh, and you hear John encouraging him to do that. So, Paul McCartney, with his songwriting partner clearly occupied with other things, and McCartney McCartney also being fed up with the ongoing are we on, are we off atmosphere surrounding the Beatles, starts work in December of 1969 on what will eventually morph into his first solo project, 
McCartney. The thing is, he starts working the album not at EMI Studios or any proper recording studio for that matter, but rather in his home in the front room at St. John's Wood. He has a Studer J37 four-track tape machine. Uh, To quote McCartney, I had a four-track machine and I just had it in the living room in the corner. I had this very simple technique of just plugging in directly right into the back of the machine, which was a very cool way to record. So pure. McCartney plays everything in the album. His Martin D28 acoustic guitar, his Rickenbacker bass, a Fender Telecaster electric, an Epiphone Casino electric, and Premier drum kit, as well as a piano, toy xylophone, uh, and even a bow and arrow. Uh, The sessions got a little more formal in January and February when McCartney booked time at Morgan Studios in Wilsdon, that's an area of London, under the pseudonym Billy Martin because he didn't want word of his solo project getting out. And then later, he moves to EMI Studios where he records the last couple of songs and assembles the final production masters. By March 16, 1970, a final playback session is held at Studio 2, EMI. Final production masters compiled on March 23rd in Studio 3, EMI, and then rushed into production with a scheduled release date of April. Now, there was a great deal of acrimony between the other three Beatles, Alan Klein, against McCartney, so the three plus Klein against McCartney, and the way the wind was blowing at this point, with the three Beatles and Klein united against McCartney, it must have made it seem to McCartney that the Beatles were done, and he wanted his solo album out. However, Ringo's album was scheduled to come out at the end of March... Let It Be was supposed to come out in April, and the others were concerned that there would be a glut of Beatles-related material on the market if McCartney went ahead with his preferred release date of April 17, 1970. However, he was adamant and actually threw Ringo out of his house after he'd come round to inform McCartney that it had been decided to delay the release of his solo record until June. In the end, McCartney gets his way, and the release of Let It Be was put off until May. His solo record came out in April. Perhaps the final nail in the Beatles' coffin at that time was a printed interview that went out with review copies of the McCartney album on April 9th, 1970. According to McCartney, Peter Brown at Apple said, "'You're putting a record out. You'll need to do publicity.'" Well, there's no way I could sit around and do a press conference, but I recognize the need for some sort of publicity. So I said, I tell you what, why don't you do some questions for me? I'll do a Q&A and then stick that out, make that into a press release or something. So he did the questions that are on that sheet and just sent them around to me with the space. So I just put in, you know, are the Beatles going to reform? So the two parts, Mo, that, that really kicked it off... Question, is your break with the Beatles temporary or permanent due to personal differences or musical ones? Answer, personal differences, business differences, musical differences, but most of all because I have a better time with my family. Temporary or permanent, I don't know. And here was the kicker. Do you foresee a time when Lennon and McCartney become an active songwriting partnership again? Answer, no. And it all kicks off after that. Right. So that is the atmosphere under which he's doing this. Can you hear that coming through on the record? The record is is uh, there's a couple of things that about the record that I hear. I don't know if I hear that except for the fact that what what I understand about that period was that um he um uh, he was drinking a lot and he was kind of depressed about the the Beatles breaking up. And so that that's what I've heard about it. And so I hear a little bit of that. I hear a little bit of like, you know, there's an aimlessness sometimes and it kind of makes me feel like like he was having trouble focusing on doing some things. That's kind of how some of this sounds to me. Um, and that's part of its charm as well. But um, but I mean, so yeah, it's hard. I, 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 it could be that sometimes it feels like, you know, he's kind of gets lost in the song, like he's lost and then he's like, then he starts playing again and almost feels like, he was hammered and he kind of like just kind of was just screwing up and he just the, the things start to fall apart which is something that happens when you've been drinking too much and you try and play so I hear that sometimes in it 
Well, the album comes out on April 17th, 1970 in the UK, April 20th in Canada and the US, and it reaches number one on the Billboard chart for three weeks, number one in Canada for a week, reaches number two on the UK charts, held out of number one by Simon and Garfunkel's Bridge Over Troubled Water. Uh, in Canada, it was pipped for the number one position by Bridge Over Troubled Water uh, and the Guess Who American Woman album. Uh, as well as Let It Be. So it was sort of competing there. As per chartmasters.org, global physical sales, 4.3 million, which, and I found this surprising, ranks it second only to Band on the Run in terms of physical sales for his post-Beatles work. Wow, I never would have thought. Me neither. Uh, I, I had to read that twice. Maybe I'm Amazed is the most streamed track off the album. 34.5 million streams of that song and counting. So let's take the vinyl out of the jacket, drop it onto the turntable, and it is side one, cut one, and the lovely Linda. Nice little start. This sounds exactly like what it apparently was, which was apparently this was him testing out his gear his, and making sure everything worked and making sure he could get sound and all that. So that's what I my uh, understanding of this recording was what it is. And so it kind of is that. Um, and um, but it is a very beautiful melody. I mean, and it's McCartney being McCartney here. It's a beautiful melody and uh, could have been maybe if, you know, in under different circumstances, could have been a, maybe a full, if this song had been fleshed out, it might have been a really beautiful song. Um, it's funny, like this record, what this record sounds like to me is like when every musician gets their first four track machine. <laughs> and that's what it sounds like to me. And and I bet a lot of people who were who started writing songs and then got a four track machine. Like the first time I got a four track, I rented one from Long and McQuaid, which is a, a music store. And I and I and I rented like a drum machine and I got it and I had I just started improvising. I just started, I'll put down a little drum beat and I'll just start playing along with it and see what I come up with. And that's like half of this record is just that. It's just like, it sounds like he's just kind of improvising and he just turns on the machine and like, I wonder what I'm going to do. He picks up his guitar, does whatever, picks up whatever instrument he's playing. And he just starts noodling around and then he starts overdubbing, overdubbing. And that's what it sounds like. It literally sounds like your first four track machine. And I guess it probably was. He'd been working for, you know, the last, you know, almost 10 years in the confines of EMI studios with the producer and you know kind of all the bells and whistles and so this was him on his own just kind of like having fun screwing around and that's kind of what this record and so obviously that's the, that's what this song is yeah I yeah. mean you know, and and you know what when we talk about like this beautiful melody I mean he's still at the height of his powers at this point like he's still a great songwriter and he's a great singer and great musician and so you know whatever might have come later you know it's he still kind of really has it and so even the stuff here that's a little bit underdeveloped it still has every single one of these songs has some kind of amazing quality to it well, there. to your point, there is supposedly a full version of this song rather than just the 42-second version on the record. It has never seen the light of day uh, at 42 seconds. It is the shortest song in the McCartney solo catalog. A little nerdy thing here. I found it interesting that the last Beatles album ends with the little McCartney snippet, Your Majesty, or Her Majesty, uh, right. and then his first solo album starts with just a cute little snippet. Mm, interesting. Uh, the I never thought yeah, and uh, and you're exactly right, too. Uh, to quote McCartney, uh, this was when Linda and I first got together. The record is me playing around the house. You hear her walking through the living room doorway out to the garden, and the door squeaks at the end of the tape. That's one of the songs from my personal experience uh, with the flowers in her hair. She often used to wear flowers in her hair, so it's just a direct diary. I was always going to finish it, and I had another bit that went into a Spanish song, almost mariachi, but it just appeared as a fragment, and quite nice for that reason. It opened the McCartney album so evocative of it now said McCartney in 2001 uh, so we go on to cut to the first proper song in the album that would be something that would be something it really would be something that would 
interesting thing about this song is it's just that one line over and over again so again this song feels vaguely unfinished to me um it's it, it it's completed it's sort of completed but it's just if i, I wonder I, maybe that's not such a bad thing um that it's just that one line over and over again i, I remember when i you know years ago listening to that band the cult and they would do the same thing they she sells sanctuary or or you know rain they'd just be the they would just sing one verse over and over again like through the song and it's like that eh, worked okay it doesn't really bother me i guess but i find by the end of it it's it's a tiny bit repetitive for me personally um but it's a cool track it's a neat track it's like a i love the whole feel of the track the acoustic guitar and the drums and the and he's playing like a sort of beatboxing with his mouth and stuff like that it's really kind of weird and it's just again this really plays into this whole idea of this record that's just him kind of playing around having fun recording getting a chance to record by himself no one telling him what to do no one influencing him he doesn't have to feel you know embarrassed because maybe john will make fun of his song or something like that it's this song almost like if a more realized version of this could have been on Let It Be. It has that sort of like two of us kind of vibe to it a little bit, you know. It's funny that you say that because the song was apparently demoed during the Let It Be sessions. Um, he wrote it in oh. Scotland and recorded it in his home, of course, for this album. But it, I didn't see any evidence of that in the movie. But uh, the documentation I read said it was. Now, are you familiar with the McCartney Unplugged album? Not really, no. Well, he, he did, back when it was in vogue, he did the, you know one of the MTV Unplugged appearances, and he, mm-hmm. does a ver- he dusted a, this song off for his appearance there. Give it a listen if you, if you get a chance, uh, because I, I thought it was a real hidden gem to dust off for that, and that version has a bit of a country feel to it, and Robbie McIntosh does some lovely slide work on that version. It's, it's worth a listen for sure. I got to be honest with you. It's like my, I sort of gave up on Paul McCartney around Wings at the Speed of Sound because it was just, Wings at the Speed of Sound was just like, it's the record, What the people who are who don't like Paul McCartney and have all those negative things to say about Paul McCartney, that record embodies everything negative that people have ever said about Paul McCartney. Just like, you know, all the, you know, the, the Silly Love Songs is on that and the whole record is kind of like that, that song. Um, so yeah, so I I know it's funny. I I kind of checked out uh, Paul McCartney two and Paul McCartney two and McCartney three just to kind of see the similarities between the three records and. Um so just to go along on that, on that, just to tease that out just a little bit. I mean, we'll have the old conversation about uh, you know which Beatle do you admire most, and I don't know that you have to necessarily pick one, but I can tell you, for me, that the sort of genesis was as a kid, Ringo, uh, kid songs, right? Probably you know you remember Yellow Submarine, Octopus's Garden. You get a little bit older uh, into your adolescent years, and it's John Lennon. You know, John Lennon told it like it was, took no shit, cynical a typical adolescent sort of attitude and into your 20s. Then when you get a little bit older, it's George Harrison because he uh, certainly put off the vibe of seeing the big picture being very spiritual and Zen and all things must pass. And there's, you know, we're part of a uh, very philosophical. And then you eventually cycle around, which is kind of where I am. And again, not that you have to pick one, but I just sit in and I look at Paul McCartney's body of work and go, he is the greatest songwriter uh, of of pop music of the pop music era i mean it's just it's you know his body of work with the beatles is impressive never mind the stuff he's done as a solo artist and he's written classical and so on so that's what about yourself Uh, okay because you you sound like you're kind of lukewarm on a lot of his stuff 
Yeah, I, I, I am lukewarm on, on a lot of his stuff. It's funny because it's, I mean, pretty much everything he did with the Beatles I thought was amazing. And, and I feel like uh, this record that we're talking about today is incredible. It's just an incredible record. And I feel, I, you know, I, but what I feel about, I'm, I'm a Paul guy. I've always been a Paul guy. I've never wavered from that. I was a Paul guy when I was a little kid and I'm a Paul guy now. Um, but he, I mean, one of the things that is sometimes good about being in a band or having some sort of collaboration with other people is that it, it sort of it reigns in some of your possibly more offensive tendencies. And I, I think the more Paul McCartney was kind of out on his own and he was kind of free to do whatever he wanted and, he, you know, and he got older and, you know, he, he there's sort of like things about him that probably were being reined in by the other guys in the Beatles and by George Martin and whatever else was going on. It's just kind of the doors of those, that kind of stuff just flung open and the sort of the, the real sort of sappy kind of stuff that you know he he ended up doing I think was like a product of just nobody kind of like letting him know that that was a bit too sappy you know so uh, yeah I'm a, I'm a Paul guy just to, clo- just to close it up on this song uh, I've always thought uh, that would be something wouldn't have sounded out of place on the White Album it has that kind of feel to me right I, I, I think yeah, and it's funny. I when I I sort of made a note to myself when I listened to it, you know, yesterday was that I almost wonder what would have happened if George Martin had gotten involved in this song. Like, what what could have come of it? It might it might maybe something a little bit more interesting would have would have happened. So we move on to cut three and uh, called Valentine's Day and a song McCartney says he made up as he went along, and it sounds like it. <laughs> sounds like that it feels very very improvised it sounds like the drums were kind of the last thing that he did too because it feels like they sort of stop part of the way through and i think it almost feels like he's having trouble staying in time because i think he recorded the other elements but not to a click track so they probably are wavering in their tempo as as the song goes on and so it's a really awkward thing to try and record drums as the last thing on a song, um, unless you played to a click track, and, and so that, that you're, you're, it stays in time. And so that's kind of how it how it uh, it kind of sounds to me. But as a jam, I, I kind of like it. Like it's kind of a fun jam. Like it's it's again, it's like it's one of those things that if you were just sitting around with a bunch of people, you know, Paul invited you over to jam with them and you start playing a song like that, you'd be like, Wow, this is really great. I'm kinda of really enjoying this. It would just be a jam, it wouldn't be a song, it would just be some kind of improvised thing, but you'd probably be thinking it was pretty cool. Um, now you came out with uh, so this was McCartney's first solo work. You came out with your first solo record in 1998, and I want to uh, I love quoting guests back to themselves, so I want to read uh, something that you said about it. Uh, here's the quote: "The biggest difference between writing for the pursuit of happiness and my solo record, Summer's Over, is that when you have a band, it's important that everyone has something to do, both in the studio and on the stage. The songs that ended up on my solo disc didn't require." a very elaborate musical backdrop so it seemed appropriate to do it myself. Summer's Over is basically entries from my journal. I sat in cafes and wrote Stream of Consciousness. Is is doing what McCartney was doing in your mind intuitive or craftsmanlike? Uh, on this record, I think he's being intuitive. I think I, I, it's funny, it's it's there's a you know I, I feel because he's even admitting that he's he's kind of improvising a lot of this, and so I think up to this point it, it seems like he really workshopped his songs and certainly you know the, the parts of the get back thing that I've seen it seems like the songs really got workshopped over a period of time, and so um, 
but on this record, I, that's one of the charms of this record is it does feel more intuitive. Like he's just kind of like whatever's coming to his mind. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, wh- that was sort of how I was with my solo record. I would, would never dream to compare, you know, myself or the record or anything to Paul's thing. But it, it was, in some ways, it was the same idea where I was just trying to do something that wouldn't be a pursuit of happiness record. That just seemed like a pointless endeavor, like for me to just do my own pursuit of happiness record without the pursuit of happiness people on it. So I kind of you know, I used a lot of drum machines and weird keyboards and stuff like that in order to just do something completely different. something that's a little bit more specifically me and it's interesting because um you know a lot of people talk about it being almost like a a lo-fi indie style record but that that kind of those terms didn't really exist back then um but when people think about it now they sort of compare it to to that kind of like it's like a guided by voices record or something like that and um and which is is so interesting because the the Beatles records were so well produced and their fidelity on them was so great. So they were always miles ahead of everybody with that. Like even other bands of like the Rolling Stones or the Who or bands like that, their records didn't sound as good as the Beatles records sounded. And so he had just finished, you know, you know, doing like, you know, a, a record like Abbey Road, which is like, you know, one of the most majestic recordings of all time. And then for him to do something like this, that's just so basic and so lo-fi and just simple it's really uh, I want to believe that he did that on purpose that it was like it was a kind of a a, a, you know the Beatles are over I'm doing something completely different right now and it's the other sort of irony of this is it was just on the cusp of the time when Fidelity and Records really took off so um, because that was the turning point between AM and FM radio. And so right into the, so we got into the 70s, then FM radio became like the big place to listen to rock music. So you had records like like Who's Next, which was a beautiful sounding record, ironically produced by Glenn Johns, who had just finished working with the Beatles. And so, you know, records like that, and then you had the, you know, the incredible drum sound on Led Zeppelin Four, you know. Um, and so... So, so it was interesting, and so the kind of fidelity that had always been there on Beatles records was now suddenly everybody was doing that. Dark Side of the Moon came out not long after that, and again, real attention done to, paid to the fidelity of that record and the sound of it, sonic properties. And so that ushered in a whole new era. And then in the middle of that, we have this McCartney record that is just pays no attention to that, has no production values. It doesn't sound bad, but it's it's definitely not a Beatles-sounding record, or for that matter, a Who's Next-sounding record. It's, it's, that's an interesting uh, observation you make, because I think probably at the time coming off of Abbey Road right this would have been really jarring it would have been what you know what is this it sounds like he did it in his living room well which he did <laughs> and, and, and 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 I wonder you know again you know Pursuit of Happiness weren't the Beatles but but I mean you had a real sound a distinctive great sound with that band and I wonder if if when people heard your solo record if they went oh what's that all about I'm going to bet they did. <laughs> and you know, that you know, I wouldn't I wasn't necessarily trying to provoke that reaction, but like I said, it was there was no I definitely did not want to make a pursuit of happiness record. Okay, yeah. summer's over. Take a look for it. Uh, I found a site where you can uh, you can buy it and download it. So, uh, dear listener, take a look around for it. Summer's over. It was Mo's first solo album, but let's continue on McCartney's first solo album. We're on side one. Let's go to cut four. A proper studio recording every night. Every night I just want to go out, get out of my head. Every day I don't want to get up, get out of my bed Every night I want to lay out And every day I want to do 
Yeah, so this is this is absolutely amazing. What a beautiful song. And again, you know, the, just as a composition, it's so great. Like, um, you know, again, the people who are on the periphery who, you know, like to knock Paul McCartney and stuff and say that he wrote these simple love songs. This There's nothing simple about this song. Like the chord changes are, and, you know, that him pulling his favorite Cole Porter trick or going from major to minor, like all kinds kind of stuff. It's just, the composition is just really, really amazing. And, and I, one of the things I like... You know, on the sort of what I call the sort of real songs on this record is they're not as silly love song ish as his records would become later on. Like this is a really nice sentiment on this record. It doesn't feel sappy or gooey or anything like that. It's a really cool, really beautiful lyric, and just like you know, he talks about himself, and then he's saying, "But you know, the pressures of the day or what the world is like." But you know, at night, every night, I'm gonna stay home and be with you, and that's kind of a really nice sentiment. Like I can sort of really get behind that, and it doesn't make me feel like you know I have to go wash the sugar off my hands after I finish listening to it. <laughs> uh, McCartney conceived the song. He said during a holiday in 1968 in Greece, he jotted down a couple of verses on his notepad, uh, but it remained in an embryonic form for several months, progressing no further. Uh, there is an electric guitar that was on it, but it was mixed out in the final mix. Um, here's a here's an interesting take. Uh, according to James McGrath, who is a musicologist, wrote a piece that I read. The last line, but tonight I just want to stay in and be with you, is the key to the song, in that it quietly challenges the uneasy relationship between rock and domesticity. McGrath points out that Bob Dylan's song from the previous year, Tonight I'll Be Staying Here With You, that's from Nashville Skyline, which came out in April of 69, uh, it ended on a similar note. So the the relationship between rock and domesticity, something I'm sure you have lived and can identify with, yes? Sure, yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, uh, I, you know, certainly as... Uh, as you get older and, 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 you know, domesticity becomes important and you have kids. And I mean, that was clearly where Paul was at. I mean, he'd sort of found the love of his life and there's kids in his life. And I, you know, he'd, you know, he'd lived, a, a, you know, from the time he was like a teenager, he'd lived a pretty full on kind of life where the band was everything. It was the totality of his life probably was the band. And so I think he was, you know, it's, you know, I'm sure he was kind of exhausted by it, and I think there was probably a part of him, and I'm merely speculating here, that was just kind of like, I like to just settle down. I I, I like my life not to be so crazy. I mean, I, I, it's no one can even imagine what it was like to be a Beatle. Like, no one can imagine how being that famous, being that important, you know, being so culturally significant that everything you say and every move you make is so scrutinized. Uh, well, you know what? Along those lines, can you think off the top of your head of another person in our lifetime who has lived as long in as intense a spotlight and carried him or herself with such class and aplomb for the most part? I can't think of anybody. No, because when we think about the super famous people, like the people hyper famous like Paul McCartney, when you think about people like that are mostly dead, you know, like Elvis Presley, Michael Jackson, you know, people like that, that just, you know, they crumbled under the spotlight. It was too much for them. And yeah, there's something about Paul McCartney that, and and maybe it was the fact, maybe it's the thing we're talking about, the fact that he wanted to, to have like love in his life and a, a, he devoted himself to kind of sort of be grounded enough to sort of persevere through all the storms. Uh, Mo, this is another one that'll send you towards that McCartney Unplugged album I talked about because he does a, he dusts this off for that as well. Uh, does a lovely version, much more bluesy and with a spectacular sort of a cappella section in it. So it's, it's again, it's worth a listen. A uh, bit of trivia, Phoebe Snow recorded a version of this song in 1979 and it hit number 41 in the UK charts. Gosh, I did not know that. I'll have to look for that. That 
is such a, a cool version of the song. Uh, and again, Phoebe Snow charting that version of the song in the UK at number 41 in 1979, so almost 10 years after the uh, original McCartney version was released. I just want to take a moment here to ask that if you enjoy these podcasts, would you please consider a donation to support the production costs of the podcast? It could not be easier, uh, and it'll help me nudge closer to my goal of constructing a The Walrus Was Paul podcast spaceship to compete with Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos. Got a ways to go, but, you know, every little bit helps. Uh, just head to the website romicast.com and click on the Support the Walrus button. Any donation, greatly appreciated. And I'll be sure to acknowledge your gift in the next episode of The Walrus Was Paul podcast. You can also navigate to the page Hire Paul. I have extensive experience as a voiceover artist, broadcaster, writer, and producer, and I'm always on the lookout for little projects to work on here and there. I will endeavor to make your project or event or podcast better. You can get in touch with me through the website, and we'll take it from there. And also, if you'd like to receive the uh, once in a while, absolutely free, the Walrus Was Paul newsletter, I usually preview upcoming episodes and maybe toss in the odd bit of trivia, Uh, you can receive that email blast by going to the website and registering, and again, it is absolutely free. So uh, let's get back into side one of McCartney, and the next track is actually two tracks, Hot as Sun and Glasses. Uh, And it's always struck me when you read the cover as coming across as a bit of a play on words. You could read it as Hot as Sun slash Glasses or Hot as Sunglasses. Anyway, it starts off with a definite mariachi feel to it. Well, it, it, to me, this is kind of like sort of the most realized of the instrumentals. It kind of actually feels like a song to me. Um, like it has a lot more production values, lots more instrumentation. And, um, and, and it's, 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 I think it's kind of a neat song. You know, when I, when I hear this record, I, I imagine a young Todd Rundgren listening to this record because... The, the the instrumentals on this record really remind me of like the first three or four five Todd Rundgren records where he'd break into an instrumental every once in a while especially when he did that record that one of his sort of most celebrated records is a record called uh, A Wizard of True Star and it's like there's probably four or five instrumentals on it and they really remind me and this one here in particular really reminds me of sort of something that Todd Rundgren would do and there's kind of like some interesting kind of keyboard things that Todd Rundgren would have done on his record too so I, I've never asked him about this but I can only imagine this was a bit of an influence on him um, because there wasn't a whole lot of other people in the sort of pop music world that were doing a lot of instrumental stuff at the time. Um, so yeah, it's I, one of the things I, I that again makes this song work for me is when he does do the glasses thing, and I guess that's him playing wine glasses, and it really sounds eerie and creepy, and it's kind of harkens to some of the weird stuff that's on the White Album. I remember, you know, when I first heard this record, I was a kid. I was probably a few years after it came out. And I remember thinking, this sounds so eerie and weird. It's kind of spooky. It almost kind of scares me a little bit. And when I hear it now, I still kind of feel that way. And it just, it just comes out of nowhere, too. It just all of a sudden, we're playing this sort of pretty, like you say, almost like a mariachi kind of song. And it's this pretty upbeat, happy thing. And all of a sudden, this eerie sound comes along and it just kind of haunts and it's got kind of a weird ambience to it and then we finish off with that little tag of that song suicide apparently it's some song that he was he he wrote it for like um he wrote it for somebody else to to play i think um 
he, he, he sent it to someone and the person was like, are you joking? Yeah, I've, I've, got, I've got the story here. Um, I'll read the quote from him. Um, it was a real early song of mine, and I used to do it as a joke, really. I actually once got a request from Sinatra, the Sinatra, for a song. Right. And I spoke to him on the phone and told him about it. Great, Paul, send it along. Thank you, Frank. And I sent it to him, and he thought I was taking the piss. <laughs> is this guy kidding you know sending sinatra a song called suicide he did not get it but i did right. think oh god maybe i should have changed it a bit before i sent it to him he said that uh, in the archive collection uh 2011 the book that came with that um yeah. and you were right on glasses the the little sound collage or experiment here's philip mcdonald who was the recording engineer at abbey road where they recorded it he says the title glasses was fun as we ended up with a huge amount of glasses all filled with water on a big table in number three studio all glasses were meticulously filled with water to the desired pitch of the song and that's exactly what it was he was that old trick that we've done at parties with a wine glass you, you rub your finger around the rim Mac uh, mccartney liked the hottest sun he he played it on the 1979 wings british tour uh, and he also regularly, apparently, regularly plays it in uh, in tour sound checks uh, oh, when okay. he's out. So, it, which leads me to ask you: so he clearly, this is just a little song that he likes playing, uh, a hidden gem, if you will, uh, deep cuts, as the as uh, the kids say now. Uh, any tracks that you like to polish off when you play with either the present day pursuit of happiness or the trans Canada highwaymen that maybe you felt were underappreciated when they were released, but you enjoy playing them. Does anything jump to mind? Well, I mean, I think we used to do that when we used to play a bit more. Um, the, I mean, the issue that we're in is that, you know, when we play, I feel like a lot of people are coming to see us play like our, their favorite songs of ours and I sort of feel like we owe that to him, them um, it's also we are all scattered across the country so getting together and rehearsing a deep cut is sometimes a bit of a challenge um, but um, we and especially because when we did our last tour or last bunch of group of shows if you uh, maybe a better, better way of describing it we, we were promoting our uh, the re-release of Love Junk and so we were playing the entire record and in playing the entire record we actually played a song um, off that record which was called um, Tree of Knowledge that we hadn't played in like decades and so for us that was like pulling like we say saying polishing off a, an old chestnut because we'd never even played it takes a bite of the apple and a vision of We probably played it a little bit when the record first came out, when we first released the record back in like 89, and, and we probably hadn't played it much since then. So I'm going to um, I'm going to ask you a very music not from a non-musician uh, because maybe a musician would would say well that's obvious but are there any songs that you have never played a note of ever again once you finished recording it? Oh yeah. I'm sure there are. I'm sure there's, there's, there's definitely songs that I don't think that we ever played live, especially off our last three records. Um, off of there's probably songs off of um, uh, um, the Downward Road. That was there were so many songs on that. That record was way too long. And I'm sure there's. I don't know if we ever played Villa in Portugal, which is a song I wrote with Jules Shear. Um, um, and certainly there must have been a song or two off of both Where's the Bone and the Wonderful World of that uh, we never, ever performed. I'm sure of it. Yeah. I, we've never performed the song Tara's theme, for sure. That's because it would have been too hard. It was basically keyboard driven and we, need, we never traveled with a keyboard player. So for sure, we never, ever played that song. So. Uh, I, just, I just find that, uh, not being a musician, I just find that so weird that you would have spent, you know, maybe hours perfecting this song and, and you know, learning it and the parts and, and it's, you know, all the elements are there, you mix it and it's a song and then you never, ever touch it again. That just seems so strange. 
Yeah, for sure. Well, I think about like like Sloan. I think Sloan, like they've put out so many records, and there's got to be lots of songs they've never played live. Mm-hmm. Lots of them. So yeah, I should ask Chris about that. Funny. <laughs> so uh, we go on to the uh, the second last cut on side one, and this is one that had been laying around since 1968 when uh, the Beatles were at the Maharishi's camp. Uh, the song is called Junk. Bicycles for two Broken hearted Jubilee Parachutes Army boots Sleeping bags for two Sentimental Jamboree so when I was a kid, when I first heard this record, this was my favorite song on the record. It was just such a beautiful song. I, I just, to me, this was just classic Paul McCartney songwriting. It was just, I felt like this could have been on any Paul on any Beatles record. And I think you know other things. You know, when we talk about every night junk and and. Um, uh, uh, maybe I'm amazed. Those to me are all songs that would have fit in really nicely on pretty much any Beatles record. Um, so it's again, it's just it's a really pretty song, the kind of pretty song that we expect from Paul McCartney. But again, not completely obvious in its composition. It's really has a lot of nice twists and turns and unexpected chord changes and stuff. That the stuff that makes that elevates McCartney's writing over other pop songwriters, like you know. I mean, you know, uh, there's no way someone, and I mean this with no disrespect, someone like, you know, Ed Sheehan could ever come up with something like this. Like, it's just, he's just a a tiny bit better than most of the people who try to play this kind of music. One of the other things I really like about this song is that harmony on it. It's really unusual. It's very unexpected. And then I was listening to, I think it's on, is it on... uh, uh, Anthology 3, I think there's a version of this, them kind of, you know, again, one of those things where, you know, Lennon was probably like messing around through it. But I hear that harmony in the background and I'm wondering, because when I hear it here, it sounds like maybe Linda is singing that harmony. And, um, but I wonder if John had originally came up with it. hear it when I listen to that 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 the version of it I think I hear that high harmony that happens in in the chorus I think I hear it there and I'm wondering if John actually well I mean there's no question that the beat the Beatles demoed the song and that's the version you hear on uh, on anthology three and you can also hear it on the Esher demos uh, on the 50th anniversary box set of the white album so they definitely worked on it together uh, right. so he he may well have inspired the you know the, the high harmony on it uh, McCartney says Linda was very helpful because she used to say I love to hear you play the guitar I was no longer sitting in a room on my own like like I used to be. So I'll strum along when I watch telly. Junk came along that way. Handlebars, sentimental jubilee, jam jars. I like images like that. There are certain words you like. I always used to say that candlestick was my favorite word. Certain words either make colors in your head or bring up a feeling. So the song was a potpourri of nice words that I had to make some sense out of. So it was bye-bye, sell-sell. Junk says the sign in the yard uh, and he just lumped it all together and he uh, yeah he quite likes the song he talked about it and in this interview was in 1990 91 so uh, one he has fond memories of I, I love the song too yeah and to me it almost sounds like the most finished song on the record and it maybe it was it sounds like the most like it feels like it had been worked on enough so that it was all the sort of I's and T's were crossed and dotted on that one. So then closing out side number one, uh, a spur-of-the-moment tune as described by McCartney, Man, We Was Lonely.
So, so he recorded this one from scratch in Studio 2 at EMI in one day, February 25th, uh, having been written the morning of the session. Does it sound like that to you? Yeah, for me, this song is probably the most ordinary song on the record. Um, it sounds a lot like what he would end up doing with Wings or, you know, on the, on the subsequent sort of beat, uh, his, like, it could have, it almost sounds a little bit more like it would have had a better place on, on Ram than it did on this record. Um, it just, it, it, there's a little bit more of that silly love song stuff on it for me personally. Um, and all that off time delay stuff, I know this is super nerdy, I apologize, but the delay is so off time on the guitar and it just drives me crazy. It's just so off. And again, you wonder if you'd gotten in the studio with Jeff Emmerich or Glenn Johns or, you know, George Martin, if that all would have gotten kind of sorted out. Um, but again, just being there on his own, I, I guess he wasn't on his own. He did have an engineer on this. He was in a studio. Um, so I don't know. It just, it, it kind of drives me crazy. What I, one of the things I do like about it is it actually has a real ending. Most of these songs feel like they just kind of peter out, like he just kind of ran out of gas and it just went away. But this song has an actual ending and it has that sort of Beatles trick where you end the song the same way you begin it, like eight days a week or something like that. So, um, so it feels a tiny bit like complete, I guess, as a song. Yeah. Uh, McCartney says, the chorus was written in bed at home shortly before we finished recording the album. The middle, I used to ride, uh, was done one lunchtime in a great hurry as we were due to record the song that afternoon. Linda sings harmony on this song, which was our first duet together. And that, uh, that weird guitar effect is a result of playing a, a Fender Telecaster with a metal drum tuning peg. Oh, neat! Yeah, that's that's what gives it that that kind of weird weird feeling to it. Uh, so uh, now, just to talk about pursuit of happiness, just for a sec here again, uh, am I recalling correctly? So McCartney kind of boom, this one came quickly to him. It was a very workmanlike, had to go and get it done. The biggest hit for pursuit of happiness that most people know. I'm an adult now. Did that come to you really quickly? Am I recalling the story correctly? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely, it did. It was uh, it was probably one of the fastest songs I ever wrote. Um, and I'm a big believer. You talked a little bit about you know intuition and craftsmanship. And I'm a big believer in, in writing intuitively. I think a lot of songwriters do that, especially initially. They you know they get an idea and they kind of blurt it out. And it's often if you just sort of blurt something out without thinking about it too much. Um, that, that can all be a good thing. And then what, what you know, some people will do after that is like, okay, I've got this great idea. I kind of spilled it out. And now I'll just kind of like, you know, file off the rough edges and, and I'll have a song. And that's kind of what happened with I'm an Adult Now. I just sort of like, um, you know, the, this... I'm reminded of the story. I've forgotten the story, but other people have reminded me that that I uh, I was walking down the street and it just came to me at, just during a walk. And I and it was before you had you know a cell phone where you could sing something into your cell phone. I literally ran home and sort of grabbed some paper and my guitar and I just started furiously scribbling down all these lines and sort of playing along. And I was just like, it's it I'm. Yeah, I hear like I hear about people who write songs in their dreams, and like Todd Rundgren says, he does that. He has lucid dreams, and he writes a song, and then he has to get up and he has to go and he has to try and remember. And like you know what, it's like with your dream, you think oh, I gotta tell my wife about this dream, and then you start telling it, and just it's already dissolved out of your brain the whole dream. And so I can only imagine it was like, but that's kind of how it felt. It's like I felt like if I you know anybody distracted me or anything distracted me the whole thing would have just zipped out of my head and it would have been gone and so so yeah I, and then and then you know afterwards i kind of organized things a little bit and i i used some of the craft that we you know we're talking about here but but yeah it was very intuitive and a lot of the songs i wrote you know in the early days were like that and and i think there's something to that i think a lot of songwriters later in their career they get so good at it that they they lean so much on the craft part and they forget about how important the, the, the inspiration is and just kind of allowing yourself to free associate that kind of thing and it's, it's, there's something really great about that I feel like whenever I'm in one of those songwriting situations where I'm writing with someone else it's like you know you're working so hard on trying to find that perfect line and those perfect words and that perfect chord change instead of just like blurting out a bunch of stuff and it, sometimes I think there's some real value in just kind of seeing what comes out stream of consciousness. That's funny. I, I still, I, I think I've heard the story before, but I wanted to get you to tell it again. But uh, it's it's such a great song, and I guess there are many like that. But it's such a great song, and I find it as a non musician so hard to believe that it just 
it just came to you like that. <laughs> yeah. And it's a, the whole songwriting process is such a mystery. And, you know, I, I read, you know, I read lots of books about songwriting and a lot of people say, well, these songs just come to me. It's like, I didn't even write them. They were bestowed on me kind of thing. And I always think, I, I just don't buy that. Like, you know, God just gave you that song. It's like, he, how come he's so nice to Bruce Springsteen and Bob Dylan and Paul Simon and Paul McCartney and so mean to so many other people? That doesn't sound like God to me. <laughs> and, you know, so I, there's definitely, as a, when you're a songwriter, you're kind of always writing a song. And I think you're always leaving yourself open to something inspiring you, or, you know, and you, you ruminate on ideas while you're doing whatever it is in your life. And then suddenly something in that rumination starts just kind of catches on fire. It's almost like you're rubbing two sticks together and waiting and waiting for that spark to happen. And then all of a sudden, oh, there's the song, the song's in that. But you've been kind of thinking about it or, you know, it's been in your mind for maybe months or before that. That's kind of how I look at it. So we will just take a bit of a pause here. That is uh, it for side one. Uh, Mo, thank you very much. And I will look forward to chatting again soon and hearing your thoughts on side two. But thanks for that. Oh, thanks for having me, Paul. Appreciate it. Great talking to you as well. Uh, Dear listener, always curious to know what you think. What are your thoughts on our thoughts regarding McCartney? A lo-fi masterpiece, something ahead of its time, or something that you don't listen to that often? You can join the conversation in several ways. On the episode page for this podcast on my website, romicast.com, that's a straightforward way. At the bottom of every individual podcast episode page, there's a comment section, and you just click and you can leave a comment there. We can also interact on Twitter or Instagram. Romanuk Paul is the handle on both. And of course, there is Facebook. Do a search on Facebook for the Walrus Was Paul podcast page. Page, and you can always leave a comment there. Uh, so that is it for this episode. Look for part two of Mo Berg's look at McCartney on the next episode of the Walrus Was Paul podcast. Until then, I'm Paul Romanuk. You take care. Do you ever get tired of being Beatles?